Hi, I'm Mark Haywood and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. He'll have thrown millions of punches at a punch bag and yet I've seen him throwing these punches like they're the most important punches he'll ever throw. In boxing, you only get out what you put in. Behind the hype of long-awaited bouts between titans of the sport lie the relentless efforts of those competitors to perfect their art, the literal blood, sweat and tears. What you see on screen is often eclipsed by what you don't. In the words of Muhammad Ali, the fight is won or lost far away from witnesses, behind the lines, in the gym and out there on the road long before I dance under those lights. And so it is for writers, too. You might think it took you a long time to finish reading The Lord of the Rings, but I guarantee that Tolkien's 17 years of writing it has you beat. Today's episode explores the rewards that can be won by owning and loving the toil, and how that hard work can evolve into the glamour and dizzying heights of fame. Our guest is long-standing BBC radio boxing commentator Mike Costello. Chapter 1. Make Him Pay When you strip back the bright lights of the ring and the roar of the hungry crowd, combat sports are a primal endeavour, the purest form of competition, one person pitted against another. But having said that, you can't ignore the lights and the crowd. They're as important actors in the theatre of boxing as the boxers themselves, the garnish that shapes the fight and decorates it with drama. So as the world continues to reel from the devastating impacts of the pandemic, how has boxing fared? And how have bouts displayed in front of empty seats changed the sport? For Mike, as a radio commentator, it's been a massive challenge. I've always said that as a radio commentator, we have two components to work with, noise and words. A radio sports commentator has to work off the crowd and bring the stadium to your kitchen, your car, wherever you might be listening to. And that's so much more difficult if you don't have the crowd behind you. In boxing commentary in particular, the listener will hear a great roar and then hangs on edge waiting for the commentator to describe what has just happened. Why have the crowd reacted in the way that they have? But what it has brought is an unintended benefit for listeners and and for viewers as well on television of getting a real insight into what these fighters go through, both men and increasingly now women, in terms of the noises, the raw noises that you hear from ringside, that when there's 20,000 in attendance at the arena, you can't hear the thwack of the leather hitting the body or the thud of the punch cannoning off the opponent's chin. So there've been those elements, the instructions from the corners, the the calm trainers, the panicky trainers, the trainers who've invested everything in the boxes. You can hear all of that emotion feeding into the event. So it's, it's been a case of adapting to cover the sport in a different way. And over the time that I've been covering this since July of last year now, being encased in various fight bubbles, as they call them, where we get tested at the beginning of the week, and we're all housed in the same areas within a hotel. It struck me how the promoters have adapted, almost shrugged their shoulders and said, look, this is the way it has to be. We can all complain or we can get on with it and we can try and make money, some money, not as much as we would have done if there were gate receipts and, and ticket receipts. 
And the boxers also have adapted like that. But what's interesting is that there have been so many shock results. I mean, boxing lends itself to unpredictability, but there've been more shock results in a short period of time than in any period in my time covering boxing. And I'm just still trying to work out how much of that is to do with this strange circumstance that the boxers find themselves in and how much they need to feed off a crowd and how some fighters have gone hungry, if you like, without being able to feed off a crowd. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because like like most sports, it's been stripped back to its purest form and you get a sense with boxing more so than perhaps ever that it is essentially two people fighting in a confined space. And when there isn't the crowd to feed off, you get the raw brutality and ferocity of the sport. But I also wonder whether you appreciate a bit more of the artistry because with a large crowd, it's easy to get caught up in the emotion of, you know, a hundred thousand people standing up when somebody lands a punch and, and not necessarily focusing on some of the more subtle nuances of the sport. Has it, has it changed the way that you look at the, at, at the, at the sport? That's the way I've always looked at it. But what has changed is that there isn't that influence from the crowd because sometimes the crowd will respond to an event that sometimes is a figment of their imagination. If they're in the cheapest seats up near the roof of the arena, they might believe that a punch has landed, that those of us sat five and six feet away at ringside, no, hasn't landed. And yet that group of people high up who send this cheer around, that, that cheer reverberates and everyone else in the crowd seems to think, well, they've seen something, so I must have seen something, so I'll have to roar. And, and, and it, it, you, you get this kind of effect that, that, that feeds around the stadium. Whereas, I mean, I, I, I've always try to to look at the the artistry and the the skill sets of, of of what i'm watching but sometimes it's it's easier to appreciate when i've finished working because as a commentator and, and you're you're not necessarily searching for words but you're looking for ways to to describe the action it's it's not always easy to at the very same time totally appreciate what's going on you can appreciate the event but not necessarily the skill and there's many of time i've, I've watched the fight back and thought there, there, there might be a very clever move where an opponent has made his opponent miss and then made him pay for that. There's a famous mantra in boxing, make him miss and make him pay. Once you've made the opponent miss with his punch, you take advantage of the opening and throw something back into whatever gap that you've created by making him miss. And sometimes you can miss those nuances when you're in the, the frenetic state that you get sometimes in in commentary when as i said right at the beginning you're you're responding to the crowd and, and trying to bring the event to to the listener you mentioned women's boxing earlier the last fight i think i mentioned to you that i was at live was at the royal albert hall it was nicola adams's what turned out to be her final fight but but women's boxing has developed in an extraordinary manner over the last few years we all know people like katie taylor and nicola um, but they really are genuine superstars, aren't they? It genuinely is that big of a deal in the women's event as, as much as the men's. And it's happened in a very short space of time. I mean, if you think that women's boxing was introduced at the Olympic Games only in London 2012, then in less than a decade, giant strides have been made. And I, I think actually that women's boxing has benefited from lockdown. And it's benefited because of the 
economic circumstances that right now, because they aren't the superstars, Katie Taylor aside, Nicola Adams aside, most of the women don't earn the same kind of money as the male boxers. And it's meant that promoters have been able to put on shows involving more female boxers because it's more economically viable for them. So the opportunities have increased greatly over the course of the last six or seven months for female boxers. And I'm now getting tweets, text messages about who do you think is going to win this fight involving Katie Taylor or, or Nicola Adams, who's now retired, but much more so than, than was ever the case, even as recently as four or five years ago. So this is a this is a growing story in boxing. It's a growing story in, in sport as well. Yeah, completely. I, mean, I think about the, you know, the England women's football team um, and their incredibly successful World Cup campaign um, a, a while back. It really did seize the imagination of um, the nation. Therein lies an issue, Mark. And, and this is um, an anecdotal example I can give of, of the dangers that, that boxing and other sports might now face because of the popularity of football and what the Women's World Cup did for the popularity of the game because I know of a, a young boxer in the West Country who was very talented so much so that she was scouted to to train with the national squad um, but she was also involved on the academy books of one of the football league clubs um, and after the World Cup she was so taken by the exposure of women's football that she moved across from boxing to football saying that there weren't enough opportunities in boxing because at the base of the pyramid we talk about the success of katie taylor and nicola adams but at the base of the pyramid the population still isn't large enough for example for this young girl who was 13 and was getting frustrated at having to travel all over the country to get opponents of her quality and then when that was found it would only happen half a dozen times a year whereas in football, she can play every weekend. So that's that's one issue where in, in, in women's sport, that the one sport can actually work to the detriment of another. And I just thought that was an interesting anecdote that the popularity of, of women's football is, is growing so quickly that it, it might affect other sports. Let, let's stick with grassroots then in, in that case. We're, we're pretty well versed on the Team GB setup when it comes to international tournaments. It's incredibly competitive the caliber of the the boxers that don't make the cut for for the event these are not just you know jobbing pugilists these are genuinely talented sportsmen and women and, and sadly there aren't enough opportunities for that I, I wonder do you think people would be surprised if they knew the extent of the depth of talent that we have not just in this country but across the world at the amateur level i don't think there's any question about that and if you look at most of the successful professional boxers, the vast majority of them have got a very strong amateur pedigree. And that can differ around the world. For example, in, in Mexico, there isn't the kind of amateur setup that there is in much of the rest of the world's powers. For example, in the UK, in the US, in Germany and in Japan, the, the hotbeds of professional boxing. In Mexico, they tend to turn professional at a much earlier age. The, the superstar from there at the moment, Saul Canelo Alvarez, turned professional at the age of 15. Now in this country, that's illegal. And so different strokes for, for different folks. But there is no question that the, 
the difficulty and I'm talking now about the situation here in Britain, the difficulty just to get to that squad, the Great Britain Olympic squad, and to get within that community in Sheffield. They train at the English Institute of Sport, real state-of-the-art facilities. It's an achievement just to get there, let alone get onto the team itself and then get selected for the Olympic Games. So there are so many different levels to get through before you're nominated to box for Britain at the Olympic Games or in international tournaments, that that means that the standard right down at the base of the pyramid is very high to start with. And that's grown over the years because of the success at the Olympic Games. That success has bred success because then UK sport, which filters down the money from the government through to different sports, have been in the past 20 years, basing their handouts on the success that that particular sport has had. And if we go back to Audley Harrison winning gold in the super heavyweight division at the Sydney Games in 2000, since then, the money being put into boxing has increased. And therefore, that has given the trainers, the coaches and the support staff in Sheffield looking after the Great Britain Olympic setup, much greater scope in terms of spreading the net wider, looking for talent. They can afford to make mistakes. They don't make that many, but they can afford to make more mistakes in terms of who they bring in to the Great Britain setup. Chapter two, the great leveler. In the boxing ring, when you're staring your opponent in the eye, it doesn't matter how well known or how well off you are. Everybody is equal. It's one of the many reasons people use boxing as therapy, the cathartic nature of the sport, the strict control that's required to be at the top of your game. Many clubs and community centres use it as a force for good to keep young people off the streets. In fact, Anthony Joshua has said that were it not for the discipline of training and boxing, there's a good chance he'd have ended up in prison. And that's a sentiment that's been echoed many, many times throughout my career in boxing. And I've been given three lives by boxing. I boxed as a youngster. I coached at the same club in South East London. And, and now I'm lucky enough to be ringside for the biggest moments. And as I said earlier, if you look at most of the successful professionals, there is a degree of amateur pedigree and amateur catalogue of, of contests on the way up. And you talk about going into a gym and, and the, the difficulties and the, the amount of effort, the amount of stamina, the amount of endurance, the amount of general fitness that it takes to go through the various routines within a night at the gym. But what I always found as a coach was that the big question comes once they step into the sparring ring. They can look impressive in the mirror on a punch bag, but it's once the opponent starts punching back that you really start to understand what's the metal of that particular boxer. How are they going to respond when they're being hit back? And it's incredible. I wouldn't have the numbers. I wouldn't have the percentages, but the number of boxers who will turn up to a gym and will happily go through all of the routines. And depending on the ability they show in front of the mirror or on a punch bag or on the trainer's pads, it depends how quickly the trainer will allow them to get into the ring and they consider it safe enough for that young boxer to be ready to take punches. The percentage of those who don't come back is very high because taking a punch on the chin or anywhere on the body, it's, it's an experience that they won't have found in any other sport. 
and it's it is striking how many do not come back not necessarily after one night but you you find that then they come back two nights later and you say well do you want to spar again and it might be oh i i hurt my leg playing football at school today and the, the excuses start coming out and then eventually they don't come back through the door and that starts to tell you that it it, it takes a not necessarily a special but a different type of character to to understand and to embrace what what boxing is even down at grassroots levels and you often hear some of the big heavyweights talk about that you know one punch is all it takes at um at, at many levels and the fact that you're knowingly and willingly getting in to the ring says a huge amount about the character and the motivation of people particularly when you get to a stage where you've been fairly successful financially and you continue to come back knowing uh, the demands that it places on uh, on your body. Um, if we think about some of the iconic fighters that we have at the moment and some of the legendary fights that we've seen uh, throughout history with, with, the, with the things like YouTube now, you can sit and watch old fights to, um, to your heart's content and, and quite often I spend too much time doing that. Why is that, Mike? We, we re-watch favorite films and movies that we've seen over and over again. Um, you know, Christmas films that you've seen every year for the last 20 years, you continue to watch them, you continue to find joy in them. Why is it the same with, with fights? I think in, in, in our early communication, I, I mentioned, I must have watched the, the Bruno Mike Tyson fight 20 times, you know, and, and continue to find joy in, in that. I know what happens. I know who wins. I know the punch <laughs> that ends it. Why do I keep watching it? Because you still think that Frank Bruno might finish Mike Tyson in the first round. <laughs> One day Tyson will go down and stay down if you keep watching it often enough. But I think it takes us back to, I mean, that's that's, that's quite a phrase that we heard recently on the, the celebrity, the, the jungle or in Wales or wherever it was. It takes us back to a happy place. I mean, a, a fight I can watch time and time and time again is, is Muhammad Ali against Joe Frazier, the first of their three meetings. That's that's my Bruno and Mike Tyson. I go back and watch time and time again, because I remember as a 10 year old boy, my dad coming in to my bedroom before he went to work in the morning, telling me the result of that fight. And I couldn't believe that my great hero, even back then, Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay, as some were still calling him, had been beaten. But my dad had been to watch that fight at the Lewis Imodium in Southeast London and it had to come back mid morning and, and, got ready for work, gone out to work and, and told me the result on the way out. But when I watch that fight, it brings me back to, to that kind of era. But it, it, it's the same with, with other fights later than that. Fights like Nigel Benn against Chris Eubank in 1990, their first meeting was one of the first massive fights that I covered as a reporter. And I remember sitting down at ringside and kind of sheepishly looking left and right at uh, famous names I knew in the media, let alone who were getting into the ring. And and that kind of almost an imposter syndrome kind of do, do I belong here? And, that, and that, those kind of memories come back when I watch that kind of fight. But as I said to you earlier, what I do then o over time is, is is try to look for for the nuances and, and the differences. I mean, that in my time as the boxing correspondent for BBC Five Live, it's coincided with the rise of Floyd Mayweather from a world champion and a very good world champion to superstar status. And I've covered a lot of his fights from ringside and having watched them back, it's remarkable at how composed this man is in, in such frenetic circumstances. I remember reading 
as a youngster a profile of the great Canadian ice hockey player, Wayne Gretzky. And his coach said that he saw the puck moving in slow motion. And that gave him the valuable split second of time to work out what he was going to do next. As the puck was coming towards him, he was already ahead of his opponents because he knew what he was going to do. And I think that Floyd Mayweather has an element of that. He sees punches coming at him in, in slow motion and therefore can react in a much more composed way, in a much more clinical way than, than others can. And I find it fascinating to watch the way he can, he can see punches coming and, and, and act so calmly in what is a, a really stressful situation. And I've seen him in training as well. And, and the great gift I've found of, of the likes of Floyd Mayweather, I've seen Usain Bolt, the fastest man in history in training as well. And it's, it's absolutely striking how much effort they put in. I've seen Usain Bolt vomiting at trackside after sessions in Kingston in Jamaica. I've seen Floyd Mayweather paying the most intense scrutiny and, and the most intense attention to detail on a punch bag. He'll have thrown millions of punches at a punch bag. And yet I've seen him throwing these punches like they're the most important punches he'll ever throw. And they're in a gym on a punch bag, but the level of dedication and concentration. And, and I suppose that's, that's common to the greats in, in whatever world we're talking about, whether, whether that's you know, a, a comedian, a, a soul singer, whoever, that attention to detail, that, that ability to, to be able to translate what they do in training or in preparation on the night under the lights, I think is, is what separates the greats from the very good. Certainly in my experience. Yes, and that I think is a universal theme, Mike, because I can read a piece of writing and gasp at the sheer brilliance of it and it's simply words on a page in order, but the level of dedication and training and effort that has gone into the simplicity of those words speaks volumes. And it's the same in sport, isn't it? I mean, when you watch Mayweather hunker down behind his Philly shell defense, it, it's almost cartoonish in what he is able to do with space. And he's, you know, he's just so hard to hit. And there is a genuine skill in that that perhaps goes un unappreciated or underappreciated. But you're right, when you do watch sportsmen and women at that level, at the elite level, um, you get a real sense of, uh, and the, the the example I always use is the, the Bill Murray quote about, there should be an ordinary person in every Olympic event, just so that you get, <laughs> you know, the understanding. I mean, I can I can swim a mile in about 55 minutes and the world record is something like 15, you know, it's, <laughs> it, it's, uh, it's staggering. Um, can we just think about the art of commentary on radio, which is quite clearly not a visual medium. If I think about some of the big fights that I listened to on the radio, Anthony Joshua Klitschko was, was one that was agonizing to be sat on the sofa listening I wasn't in this country, I was abroad, I listened to it. And there is a moment where you think, actually it turned and it turned so quickly in, uh, I think it was the fifth round where he ended that round, Anthony Joshua, in a considerably worse place than you might have expected half halfway through. The challenge of capturing that, Mike, when the audience cannot see 
what you're doing. I know you've been doing this a long time now, but are you often, do you have to recalibrate um, when you go from doing commentary on the radio to perhaps doing it when the audience can see the athletics action, for example, that, that's being broadcast? Absolutely. It's, it's the difference between adding to the pictures and painting the pictures. And they're two very, very different skills. And certainly in boxing commentary, but it applies across radio sports commentary. The crowd are such an important component of that. And halfway through that fifth round, the crowd would have been so buoyant. But by the end of the round, the crowd are not quite so loud. And so then it's, it's a case of explaining why, why is the noise being subdued or, or, or why has it got slightly quieter? And it's because Joshua is no longer in the control that he was halfway through the round. And it's a case of capturing that kind of almost seed of doubt that would be in the minds of not just Joshua and his corner staff, but everybody around at, at ringside. Whereas on television, it's a case of just finding the right pithy phrase to maybe, I suppose, repeat what's in everybody's mind. It's difficult to take myself there as a television commentator because I wasn't there at that moment. But that, that's what I'd be looking at, would be to, to almost try to replicate what, what people are thinking at home. Is this over? Is this over? Will he come back? Will he come back? Those, those kinds of thoughts. Because by the time you get to, to that point of a fight, it's about the emotion. It's about where the fight is going. It's not necessarily about the picture postcard left hook or the gorgeous uppercut or the beautiful bit of skill by Mayweather or in this case Joshua. It's more about capturing the raw emotion of everybody on their feet at ringside and, and just bringing people to that moment at ringside and trying to get them to, to understand that the very next punch could be the last punch. And that sense of drama should keep people captivated, should keep people with you the whole time. Chapter three, Great Nights with Great Noise. In the past, it seemed like the world's biggest boxers were fighting all the time. But as in all sport, money drives its success and that relentless cycle of fights just isn't achievable these days. But far from being the root of all evil, money may be the reason we feel so passionately about the big fights. Without the big paychecks, would we have the epic build-up? Would we have the feeling of excitement as we wait months, if not years, for the likes of Anthony Joshua and Tyson Fury to lock horns? And that, that's the key factor, is money. If you look back to Mike Tyson's career as champion, and this is important, before he became champion, he was fighting at some, some stages eight, nine times. I think in his first year as a professional, he fought 11 times. But as the standard goes up, there's more recovery time needed and there's more preparation time needed for the next fight. The important factor that's taken over the sport without question is pay-per-view and the need for promoters to spread the awareness of the contest. So if you look at any of the great champions out there now, none of them, or certainly very, very rarely, do they box more often than twice a year. And that's because of the amount of selling that the promoters have to do. I remember covering a fight between Oscar De La Hoya and Floyd Mayweather in Las Vegas in 2007. And the promoters came over to London as, as part of a, a city by city tour to try and build the global pay-per-view sales. In the United States, it was on sale for 
$75. To watch it at home, still paying $75. Over here, it was on sale for, I think, £15. But the promoters said to me at one stage, by the time this fight comes around, there won't be a soul breathing in the United States who doesn't know it's happening. They might not buy it, but they'll know it's happening. And that need to sell a fight, not every fight is as big as that, not every fight garners the kind of audience that that one did, but it's the, it's the pay-per-view mechanism, it's the necessities around pay-per-view that mean that the, the great champions or the, the most popular champions, the likes of Anthony Joshua, fight only twice a year. And that's the case with De La Hoya, that's the case with Floyd Mayweather, who've both retired now. But if you look at Vladimir Klitschko before Tyson Fury took the title from him, Tyson Fury now fighting twice a year as champion, that is, and Anthony Joshua twice a year, you, you'll see virtually all of the, the champions down the years fight twice a year because that's, that's seen as the amount of time that's needed to build a fight and therefore, and, and also afterwards for the boxers to recover from those fights. And it's also one of the reasons that it, the fighters in the main walk away from the sport in a far healthier state than many of their forebears, simply because they don't have the 200 fights that Sugar Ray Robinson had at a very high level back in his career. Tyson Fury is a fascinating person to observe in general, but but certainly from a from a writing perspective and understanding of character. You know, he's not just getting in the ring to fight an opponent. He has dealt with so much over the last few years that you get the sense that he's at times, you know, fighting his own demons as well as the person in the ring, as well as, you know, the, the wider world. The resilience that he has shown to get back into the shape that he has and then produce the performances in the ring that he has. I'm not quite sure I'd have believed you if you'd have said that, okay, here's what's going to happen to Tyson Fury from the moment he fights Klitschko to where we find him today. I'm not sure I would have bought that, Mike, because it seems such a huge sell, but it's been extraordinary to observe the change that he's gone through, hasn't it? It has, and there are other examples down the years of those who've taken on demons, you know, fighting against themselves as well as fighting against their opponent. But the, the transition of Tyson Fury is, is nothing short of remarkable. And, and if you look at the, the two careers, if you like, he, he finishes that first career by beating Vladimir Klitschko, a long reigning champion. And around this time last year, beats another long reigning champion in Deontay Wilder. And in between those two, there are 924 days out of the ring. And it's not just the case of out of the ring lying on a beach. It's out of the ring and seriously abusing his body with addictions to, to drink and drugs. And so to find, first of all, the strength to overcome those addictions, had he led just a, a normal life as a father to five children from there on, it would still have demanded a salute to the man for simply overcoming those demons in the way that he did. And there are many examples, you know, way beyond sport of... of stars not being able to deal with the fame that comes with winning, that comes with a great performance, that comes with great plaudits. But the way he has dedicated himself, and some argue around him that actually boxing has worked as his saviour, that by going back into the gym, he gave his life a new direction, gave his life a different kind of purpose. 
And I remember interviewing him this time last year in the build-up to the rematch with Deontay Wilder. And he said that he fears Sundays. He doesn't like Sundays because that's the only day he doesn't train. And it was fascinating to, to start to understand just how important boxing has become to him. And there might be this question, which he found the answer to first time around, again, when his career is over second time around. What does he do to find an activity, an interest, something in his life to fill that void? Whatever it is that's, that's drawing him to the gym, and he says it's not necessarily the appeal of the crowds. And yet when he turned down the chance to be among the nominations for the BBC Sports Personality of the Year. He said, I'm the people's champion. I get the vote of the people and that's what inspires me. And Barry McGuigan once said to me in a documentary I made called Life After Boxing, he said that that adulation is like an A-class drug and it's very difficult to walk away from that. And that's, that's for me, is, is you know, I've, I've used the phrase before, but the, the hardest fight of all for, for boxers is, is, is the one with life after boxing but it does seem to me that there are far more there are more measures in place than than there ever were for for boxers to cope with those sometimes dark days when when the lights have turned off above them mm. we're recording this mike in the first month of 2021 a year that we all hope will bring us closer to the fight that we've been dreaming of for uh, a long time um, I know that you will have been inundated with requests for commentary about what might be the heavyweight unification um, bout. We're still, as I understand it, um, a way away from that. We would love it to happen. We would also love it to happen in a manner that we could be there in person. It's not really the sort of event that you want to go on without people there. All things being well and equal, and we get to that, stage this i'm not exaggerating here this is the biggest fight of all time isn't it i don't think there's any question about that certainly in the united kingdom i mean if we go back in the united states to those days of ali and frazier and the rumble in the jungle and ali and george foreman maybe it doesn't quite measure up to those but in terms of british boxing history then i certainly won't have covered anything anywhere near this in terms of the the appeal and, and how it will command the attention of, of sports fans across the country. There's no question about that. And I think that if you look at the, the massive events in my lifetime, but in, in, in most lifetimes, or, or, or certainly in the history of British sport, the 1966 World Cup was staged here, won by England, and the 2012 Olympics were staged here with great success for British athletes. Aside from those, which were tournaments staged over a long period of time, in terms of a single day sports event, this will be as big, in my mind, bigger than anything else that's been staged here. Whether it's Andy, Andy Murray winning Wimbledon, Lewis Hamilton winning a British Grand Prix, this will be bigger than anything we've known in terms of a single day sports event in British boxing and in British sport. Back to what you said about the Oscar de La Hoya and Mayweather fight, even if you don't follow boxing, I'd be astonished if you could find, you know, the night before the fight, anyone in the country that hadn't heard that this fight was, was going ahead. It almost transcends not just the type of sport that it is, but sport itself. It, it's bigger than both of those things because it's just such a huge moment 
in history, not just sporting history, that I would be surprised, staggered, if you could find anyone that hadn't heard of either Tyson Fury or Anthony Joshua. And it will be quite staggering, the amount of money that it generates. I mean, it's it's no outrageous forecast to say that each man could earn $100 million from this contest alone, and, and, and maybe more. That might be a conservative estimate. And I always say there are three categories of fight. There's the first category, which interests only boxing fans. The middle category invites sports fans in to join the boxing fans. And there's this last category where people who don't necessarily have any interest in sport are also drawn in to the embrace of a massive event. There are very few fights of that nature. This is without question one of those. Leaving the the clearly blue ribboned um, fight to one side, what else are you looking forward to from a boxing perspective um, over the next 12 months? There's so much to look forward to over here. Britain has a range of world champions, male and female. Josh Taylor in the light welterweight category at 10 stone is superbly talented. Another one with Olympic background, Josh Warrington from Leeds should be fighting for a world title in February. In terms of globally, the lightweight division now is as strong as pretty much any division in history has been potentially if the fights are made. But there is so much to look forward to across the sport. I think we're, we're in an era where there are the likes of Anthony Joshua and Tyson Fury in the heavyweight division. Alexander Usyk has just moved up from the cruiserweight division to the heavyweight division. We've got the likes of Sal Canelo Alvarez, a Mexican who's won world titles in four separate weight divisions, a brilliant bantamweight from Japan, Naoya Inoue. These are fighters who would have stood up and not just survived, but thrived in any era. And we've got them all in our midst at the same time. This is a golden era for global boxing. And Britain is very much a part of that with some of the most talented boxers that, that we've known on our shores for a long, long time. And if the sport does open up again, and it, to me, it's, it's suffered more than any other sport through the lack of crowds, that kind of visceral, gladiatorial essence that a crowd brings to the sport. It's, this sport has missed it much more than any other. And the return of crowds and, and to see all of these great talents back in action in, in 2021 is, is what's given me some kind of hope as we, as we turn into the new year. There's already talk of various dates for various fights and hopefully vaccine permitting. You know, if we were to talk this time next year, we'd be regaling each other with tales of being ringside for for great nights with with great noise all over again. And certainly going back to, you know, right at the start as a, as a radio commentator to turn up without the noise is, you know, is, is, is to turn up with a limb missing, really. Well, I'll hold you to that, Mike. We'll put a date in for January 2022 and see what the next... Let's go for it. Yeah. Like. <laughs> Mike Costello, thank you very much. It's been fascinating. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. My pleasure. Conclusion. A massive thank you then to Mike Costello for joining me on the podcast. And to recap, what have we learned? The big moments may seem like the most exciting, but it's your character's journey to the big moment where the drama really comes alive. Rather than using your story as a vehicle to build up to a single event, ignore the ending for a while and view the journey as the most important part of your tale. In television commentary, you add to the pictures. In radio, you paint them. Mike turns what he sees into words, but it's not enough to simply 
tell the listener what's happening. He has to make us feel it, feel as if we are there in the thick of the action, under the lights. It's not about the words. It's about the right words at the right time, a classic case of show, don't tell. When you strip back the noise of the crowd, all you hear is the raw emotion. When your pen is struggling to put anything meaningful to paper, try dimming the noise in your own life. Get rid of all the stresses. Try and step back and simply write for writing's sake. Feel the raw emotion again. And finally, remember what Muhammad Ali said about the work being done long before you dance under the lights. Raw talent will only get you so far. It's hard graft and relentless efforts that will bring you success. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood, and if you'd like to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine. New episodes are released weekly. Please like us and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. Keep writing.